So, Titus chapter 1, initially verses 1 to 4, and then chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. So the, um, we're looking at chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. That's a new leaflet. I've printed that in there since I was so short. Well, when I was growing up, uh, my, mate, my big brother Richard had a mate called Smithy. And Smithy was full of daft ideas that were always getting him into trouble. Now, the church I grew up in, so if you picture sort of a, an old-fashioned sort of 1870s church with a traditional pipe organ, you know, the big metal pipes at the front, well, they were just, for, they were just ornaments, uh, and the actual workings were in a little bit around the back where you could go into. And apparently the sound actually came out of just plain rectangular wooden pipes, which rested on the bellows. And Richard and Smithy, well, Smithy and Richard, thought it would be fun to find out what would happen if you took them all off and swapped them all around. So sure enough, the following week, when Alan, the organist, came to play all over the place, he couldn't get a tune out of it. it. The organ made a terrible noise because it was set up all wrong. Each pipe was on the wrong foundation, and no amount of activity by the organist was, was going to fix it. The pipes were on the wrong foundations. As we seek uh, to grow as a church here in Woodcroft, uh, what should we be on about? What should our priorities be? What should be our foundations that we're building on? So just like that organ needed the right pipes on the right air vents, we need to see, set the right priority on the right foundations. So... This letter, Titus, that uh, Richard just started reading for us, 
takes us back to the foundation of some of the earliest churches on the Mediterranean island of Crete. And it gives us a chance to see what God thinks should be the foundations of churches as they're planted and grown. See, wouldn't it be great if the Bible had a letter specifically to churches planted where, humanly speaking, it would be really hard to get a church off the ground? Wouldn't it be great if the Bible had a letter to somewhere like the southern suburbs of Adelaide? Because how do you bring the truth about Jesus into a society and a culture which can't even agree what truth is, a culture that's obsessed with the self, with the individual? How do you bring the truth into a culture openly hostile to Christian ethics? Well, those questions facing us here today were the same questions facing Titus. So this is a really good letter for us. Uh, Just some background, Titus was a a long-time trusted companion and co-missionary with the Apostle Paul, Paul's kind of fixer. And he'd remained behind on Crete after a successful missionary trip with the Apostle Paul. I mean, say successful because it seems gatherings of believed churches all over the island, meaning that Titus, uh, in verse 5, it says, Titus is, is told to go and appoint leaders in every town. But Crete, nice holiday destination now, but then, rough as rats. So degenerate was the reputation of this island at this time that the Greek words meaning to lie or cheat and falsehood are derived from the name Crete. So lying and cheating is synonymous with Crete. And Paul quotes in verse 12, one of their own poets, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. That's the very first entry on TripAdvisor. So I'm dying to know, what's the church growth strategy? You know, what's the successful planting foundation principles for reaching a place like this with the gospel? What should be our first principles at Woolcroft? for reaching our friends, our colleagues, our family, and our local communities, and growing together as disciples. What should we be on about? Today, we're going to concentrate just on this opening of of this letter, because it's easy to skip over the greetings. I mean, admit it, when you open an email, you don't read the first two lines, do you? But Paul's greeting here really sets out his stall and sets the heartbeat for the entire letter. So let's take a closer look. Uh, Paul is doing sort of the traditional letter writing thing for his time, starting with who it is that's writing. So verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So we find out a bit about Paul here. When I used to train radiography students, we had on placement a student from Wales. She'd come on an elective to improve her job prospects. But her email address began sexywelshbird at email.com or whatever it was. So I suggested that she probably should change it if she wanted to, you know, be taken seriously in job applications. But what do we learn from Paul's email address? Well, Paul is a servant or a slave of God. So what his life his reason for being, 
his life's vocation is, is serving God and God's purposes. So later in verse 11, we'll, we'll hear about false teachers who are in it for themselves, for dishonest gain. But that's not Paul. Paul's only interested in serving God. So Paul is a humble servant of God, but he also claims authority. He says he's an apostle of Christ. That is, he is one of the 13 people in the New Testament chosen by Jesus to bear eyewitness testimony about him and his gospel message. Uh, And that witness we've now got in God's word, the Bible. So in other words, Paul's whole life and work is dedicated to being God's messenger, God's witness. So you might have come across people in Bible studies or stuff who say, I like Jesus and all, some of those Psalms are nice as well, aren't they? But I don't like Paul. No, I don't like his stuff. He's too grumpy. But Paul is speaking for Jesus. He's his messenger. So for Titus to know what God's priorities are, for us to know what God's priorities are for our church, we need to heed Paul, what Paul has to say here. So why is he writing to Titus? What foundations does he want him to achieve? The faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So that's our outline. That's simple. Faith. Knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So foundation number one then, faith. Excuse me. Faith is how we become a Christian. And faith is how we carry on as a Christian. So faith, uh, a bit Christianese and it, just keeps saying faith. Faith, believing in Jesus in such a way that you trust depend, rely upon him. Throw your lot in with him. Faith. Believing, trusting, depending on. So in establishing and growing our church, our goal is to gather together people, not just knowing about Jesus, but calling people to trust in Jesus and to nurture and encourage one another and to share Jesus with the intent of persuading people to put their trust in him. So a church can get involved in sort of social action ministries, helping people with their problems, but that's not our primary purpose. More important is to grow one another in faith in Jesus as we go through problems. We'll see in this letter how truth leads to godly living. But we won't found our church on morality or good works. We want those to be the fruit, but we're not on about do this, do that. And that's why our our preaching and our teaching is not all about what we must do for God, but starting with on what God has done for us, trusting in his grace, his undeserved kindness to us. Because having that foundation of faith means that you can be sure of having eternal life. No no longer lost, worrying if you've lived a life that was good enough by your own standards, never mind God's. If you trust Jesus, you can know the freedom 
and the goodness of being saved by him forever. The faith. We need to be careful that we don't get so busy doing church that we forget what God has done for us. You know, under the bonnet of how we sort of plan, our, plan and think about our ministry here, are five words beginning with M. Mission, maturity, ministry, membership. All of which are seeking to magnify God. And you've you probably heard me talk about them before. And every church has got a ministry plan. But they're, they're a helpful tool to help us how to remember, to remember how God was have, have us live out uh, the gospel together. They're kind of fleshing out these principles we're looking at today. But what they're not is a list of stuff that, if only we get them right, we'll win favor with God. Our favor with God is a free gift from him, won for us by Jesus when he died in our place and took the punishment we deserve on the cross. Faith, trusting in Jesus, is how we become a Christian, and faith, depending on Jesus, is how we carry on as a Christian. So pray for one another's faith. Ask each other that awkward question. How are you going trusting in Jesus? How are you going in faith? Remind one another about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and our certain hope of eternal life. So that's our first foundation. We're to be on about to further the faith of God's elect. Elect just means anyone who is a believer or is going to be. And then verse 2, next foundation, their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Knowledge of the truth. Because we long for truth, don't we? And in this age of post-truth, alternative facts, and fake news, it seems like everything's up for grabs. And visitors to the Daily Mail online uh, who use Microsoft Edge these days are presented with this warning, urging them. It, the message reads, proceed with caution. This website generally fails to maintain basic standards of accuracy and accountability. That's supposed to be a mainline newspaper in the UK. Truth. I went to a friend's wedding a few years ago, and there was an angry bloke who, when he found out I was a pastor, was keen to tell me that I'd got it all wrong, you know. And all that really exists is what you can measure with a repeatable experiment. So I asked him, well, what are we doing at a wedding? You know, why are we celebrating, I don't know, something intangible like love, commitment? Why have you put posh clothes on? Science has got a lot of answers, but there are lots of things like love and longing and life after death that it doesn't have answers for. It doesn't tell us the truth about. The Apostle Paul says foundational to our churches is growing in the knowledge of the truth that does have the answer to the big questions of life. Verse 2. The hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, so it's all true, the hope of eternal life promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. So not a general truth, but 
God's truth is what we're going to be on about. God's word. God's word, which is no longer a mystery waiting to be revealed. It can be known now through Paul's preaching, he claims. And Paul's preaching that we've got recorded for us as the word of God in the Bible. So our second foundation is to grow in our knowledge of the truth as revealed in God's word. Now, growing in knowledge, reading words, doesn't it all sound a bit bookish, a bit kind of thinky, intellectual? Well, yeah, it does. But think about it. How do you know anything? How do you know any person? Well, it's through what they say and what they do. If someone's hard to know, get to know, it's often because it's hard to get a conversation with them. And that's what the Bible reveals to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in Scripture. Scripture tells us everything we need to know about God and his son, Jesus. We don't have to sit around looking constipated, waiting for God to tell us something. God's promise is that as we read the Bible, he will illuminate it. He'll bring it home to our hearts. He'll have it make sense to us through his spirit at work in us, bringing his word alive to us. Now, sometimes it's hard going. Sometimes you have to really wrestle with it. Sometimes it's a real head scratcher. You might have to get a commentary and try and understand the original language. And ask anyone here who's been a Christian for donkey's years. Sometimes it takes a lifetime to sink in. But God's word is all the truth that we need. We tend to make a false distinction between what we know in our heads and what we feel in our hearts and what we do in our actions. But in reality, everything you do is determined by what you think is true. I'll say that again. Everything you do is determined by what you think is true. So for us to be doing the right thing as church, especially in a world full of lies, we need to be knowing the right truth. We need to be filled with the knowledge of truth of the gospel. So that means everything we do together as church is centered on God's word. The structure of our services, the songs we choose, what we do in our small groups. So listen to sermons. Listen to reliable service, sermons and Bible talks off the internet. Read the Bible one-to-one -one with someone. Use Bible reading notes. Memorize scripture. Ask each other that awkward question again. What have you been reading in your Bible lately? What have you learned from it? Get in the truth from God's word. You know, our network of churches got a reputation, really, for emphasizing the importance of God's word. And yes, for even being pretty nerdy and intellectual about it. You know, I thank God for that. We don't need to be embarrassed about that. Because these are words of truth. Words of life. And we don't have to be really smart to get it. But whatever brains we do have are best used for wrapping our heads around the life-giving truth God has given us in his word. So this knowledge of the truth, knowing the good news about Jesus, about his life, his death and resurrection, 
forgiveness of sin and eternal life that he gives for free by grace. That truth never just stays in our heads, in our hearts. It fills our hearts and flows out into how we live our lives. So it's the knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. Our last heading, that leads to godliness. I reckon all of us would aspire to be more like Jesus, to be more godly, wouldn't we? That pipe organ that my brother and Smithy sabotaged, uh, the organist had no chance of getting a decent tune out of it. Well, how can we get a good tune out of ourselves? How can we grow in godliness? Well, like that pipe organ, the tune of godliness can only come from the right foundations. Because there's loads of reasons we might want to be a better person. um, So that we don't look bad. So that people want to be our friend. Maybe even to oblige God to reward us for being good. We might seek to be godly to avoid feeling guilty. To stop hating ourselves. Even to avoid hell. The trouble is all those reasons are more about us than they are about God. They're kind of just external constraints on our heart's desire. They're a bit like this picture. Did that picture make it on, Robert? For the recording, it's a picture of a big old car horn that honks and a little label on it, don't. Well, it doesn't change your heart's desire to want to go and squeeze that and make a big noise in the antique shop, does it? What really changes our hearts, really changes us from the inside core of who we really are, inside out, is the knowledge of the truth of the gospel. Or to put it really starkly and dryly, knowing and trusting in the right doctrine will result in godliness. Those doctrines around verse 2, the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. See, we're not just saved by the gospel. You know, you hear the gospel, you understand it and respond, and then you kind of graduate to the more advanced stuff. The gospel is through all of God's word, and we continue to be transformed by the gospel. Because God accepts us into his kingdom as we are, Whatever we've done through Jesus, no one is too far gone. Forgiveness is available today and it will last forever. But God leaves us, loves us, sorry, too much to leave us as he finds us. He wants us to grow in godliness. And the foundation for that is knowing, believing and trusting the right stuff about God. But you might say, well, Really? I mean, the gospel is pretty simple. Is that really enough to keep us going and growing for our whole life? Well, yeah, let's think about a few examples. So, for example, how about lust? All right. We can be careful about what, what we look out, careful about who we hang out with, where we go. And those are good, practical, helpful steps, controls. 
but they're just curtailing what's happening on the inside. But what if we try something else? What if we think about and are moved by these gospel truths? That that person we're thinking wrongly about is precious to God. That person is so precious to God that Jesus died for them. What if we think about that that person has inherent dignity and importance because they're made in God's image? So that how I look and think about them really matters. Or how about this? If I know God sees me as a precious child adopted into his family with nothing to prove anymore, well, I won't need to position myself in power over someone else. I won't need to be defensive about them undermining me. And I won't need to go and undermine them behind their back. When I understand the extent of God's grace and his patience and his understanding of me, when I understand the wrath I deserve, well, and that dampens my anger towards other. So I could go on. Lots of examples of how knowing the truth of the gospel just changes everything around and leads us to godliness. Um, there's another example in your service sheet about how the message of Christmas leads us to humility. Well, the gospel is so simple, we can share it in a minute, minute or two. But the gospel is so deep, so rich, so powerful that it has a lifetime worth of training in godliness to offer us. So what are our priorities as we build this church together? To further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. So let's draw out just some implications for us briefly. First, do we really believe this? Do we trust that if we prayerfully teach and learn the Bible, our church will grow? The temptation will always be to rely on our own clever ideas, our own hard work, the latest ministry trend. And of course, we should work hard to bring our best efforts to loving and serving God and, and one another and sharing Jesus. Bring our best, work hard at it. But always beginning with, always informed and shaped by the knowledge of the truth as we find it in the Bible, because that's what leads to godliness. Second, let's ask ourselves, how are we going at listening to the gospel as we're taught teach week by week? Do we still value the gospel? Are we listening well enough that we're gripped so that we can grow in godliness? Do we still reckon the gospel's got something to teach us? And finally, let me ask, how are you going in your faith? How are you going in your faith? In fact, when I call and catch up with you, I should be asking you that every time. And I'm sorry for not doing that more. 
So give each other permission to ask that question. Because that's the question that really matters in life, isn't it? How are you going in faith? It's more important than our health, more important than how easy or hard our week has been. How are you going in faith? And when you hear the answer, encourage that person in their faith. Over the next few weeks, we're going to see Paul work out these principles in practice. So chapter one, the rest of chapter one is going to be how this works out in the church, and chapter two in the home, and chapter three in the world. How faith and godliness are furthered by the knowledge of the truth. And how they're scuppered by false doctrine. So what I thought we'd do to finish is we'll finish with some truth. We're going to read together the Apostles' Creed. And that just sort of gathers together in short form the guts of the truth of the gospel. And as we read it out loud together, just start thinking do I really know this? Do I really believe this? And if I do, how's that going to work out in my groaning godliness? And if I don't believe it, or I don't understand what that bit means, who will I ask to help further my faith? So let's bring the words up, Robert, and we'll say this together. We believe. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Apostolic Church, the fellowship of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life eternal. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond in song now. We're going to build each other up in faith. We're going to sing the truth of the gospel that leads to godliness in Christ alone. So let's stand together and sing.